You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Christopher Moore, the author of 14 very funny novels, including Lamb, The Stupidest Angel, Fool, A Dirty Job, The Serpent of Venice, and others. Christopher joins me today via phone to talk about his novel A Dirty Job, published in 2006, and the forthcoming novel Secondhand Souls, published in August 2015. Welcome, Christopher, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. Now, just tell us a little bit about what we can expect from Secondhand Souls. I've I've read also, just not to set off the floodgates, but I've read that you have occasionally um, brought back characters based on reader requests. Is that true? Oh, yeah. I totally, yeah. The request lines are open. Okay, Um, that's good to know. And this book has a lot of repeat characters. And, you know, my my feeling, I like the illusion at the end of a book that that life goes on, that what you've seen is sort of a snapshot of of a conflict that hopefully is resolved in in a satisfying manner for you. But that the characters just continue on. If I've gone to all this trouble of of making them come alive in my sick little laboratory, I want them to continue. And so occasionally you encounter them again, and and uh, and you certainly do a lot. Secondhand Souls is really a sequel um, to a dirty job. It, Great. I think everybody comes back, and um, and I couldn't not do that because you know we've we've had almost ten years of people saying I want more minty fresh, I want more Great. Lily, I want more Charlie, and um, and so there were points where, where I thought I can't, I don't have room for these people because while a dirty job takes almost 400 pages, sort of setting up this whole mythology, um, and world where all these different characters live, um, and, and at the same time trying to portray the different neighborhoods of the city. So there's, there's a, what it does is sort of initiating a lot of balls in the air, um, to juggle secondhand soul starts out with all those balls already in the air. Yeah. And so it's a, a, a quite a bit more urgent and, 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 uh, compact and, and try, and there were points in, in writing it, um, and that I hope will be transparent to the reader that I've gone, how am I going to get these characters in? How am I going to, people aren't going to let me, you know, you go, you can't not have these hellhounds in it. You can't not have Russian grandmother. Right. In it. So can you please, briefly describe a dirty job well a dirty job is basically um the story of a guy who's a bit of a hypochondriac and and a beta male as i define it uh, pretty extensively in the book and he gets the job of being death and has to run it out of a secondhand store in a neighborhood in san francisco the italian neighborhood called north beach and sort of it's the adventure from there on um, of him trying to raise his daughter by himself and, and learn how to be death. <laughs> it's the, 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 that's the elevator pitch of it. <laughs> Thank you. And then you've written a sequel, correct? Right. Secondhand Souls takes off where the, where the first one ended. And uh, I think a year has passed in between. So, so Charlie Asher, who was the main character of the first one, is... is uh, continues his adventures, even though we're not sure what's going on with him at the end of Dirty Job. Well, tell us a little bit, maybe the way to get into it is to talk a little bit about something that I think is consistent through all your books, which is your very rich supporting characters. 
some books have a very, very strong protagonist and then other characters sort of fall by the wayside. But that is not at all the case in your books. So maybe you can describe Ray a little bit to us. Well, Ray, uh, you know, my characters tend to be Frankenstein together from real people, like aspects of people. It, they're not usually, I, only in a couple instances over the 15 books have I actually based someone on a, a character on a real person, uh, unless it was a historical persona who I never knew. So Ray is this cop who has been wounded on the job and he's retired and he's sort of, as many um, people who, who are forced to retire early, you know, he finds a way to sort of fit in by getting free rent from this guy at the secondhand store who doesn't report his income so he doesn't hurt his police pension. And and Ray, um, he's sort of where single women go to give up. And uh, he's uh, he's had a, a number of uh, a number of divorces and, and he's gotten to the point where he he just realizes he's not going to meet anybody that can actually figure out who he is. So he started to go to these foreign dating sites like DesperateFilipina.com. And that's based on a real guy that I, I met around the time I was getting ready to start uh, a dirty job. And, uh, and so I sort of explore that. And Ray sort of has, you know, the good aspects of someone who's a cop and, and many of the, the sort of jaded views of society that uh, bail bondsmen and cops and attorneys get because they see a lot of the worst of, of who we are. And, uh, and, and the unfortunate part of that is that Charlie, who is his boss, is sort of going through this very weird supernatural connection. And everything that he does, uh, Ray associates with the behavior of a serial killer. And of course, Charlie, who is a little bit over analytical because he's a beta male and his, he's plagued by this uh, imagination instead of being, you know, being strong and, and a leader, he's more of, I have an overactive imagination. And that's why my genetic line survived over the millennia and uh he pretty much sees everything ray does as being the behavior of a, of a serial yeah. killer yeah they so. each suspect each other right exactly um and that's a minor very minor thing this isn't sort of hopping on the serial killer bandwagon this is no, just no, sort of an, an aside but my my minor characters all i think it's important i had a, a really good teacher a guy named shelly lowenkoff and he taught that every one of your characters should have an agenda and mm. you should know you know what they want and what they're willing to do to get it and so i approach even very minor characters with you know trying to get into their head sort of the way an actor would get into the into the head of a minor character if you're playing you know Banquo in in Macbeth. That's not the lead character, but you have to bring the full aspect of your ability to that character and and get into that character. And and I sort of feel that way about the minor characters that I create. Is that I have to bring the best of my abilities to getting into their head, even if they maybe only appear on a, you know two or three pages. I do think you're successful with that, and I think I think it's very distinctive. And because I also think you give your minor characters. Um, enough of the funny lines and the humor. I mean, you don't you don't leave that out as well. And one of the funniest characters, I think, is Lily, which you can tell us about. And and what her agenda is 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 pretty clear in terms of how she how she responds to this whole this whole scenario. So tell us a little bit about Lily. Well, Lily sort of um, she she's sort of a, a despondent goth girl, which is is maybe redundant, but but it was just something that I, when I was wandering around San Francisco, I would see these kids, you know, and you know, on the bus or whatever, because I I just do a lot of 
walking the streets and looking at people and eavesdropping at coffee shops and so forth. And, and so Lily, when the book begins, is 16 years old and she's basically given up on all of humanity and, you know, has, wants to live in this dark, dimmy bond of despair and, and uh, you know, really sorry that she's not a vampire. She's, you know, far beyond the twilight, sparkly, twinkly vampires, but really likes the whole dark death bit of it. And she just couldn't be any more disappointed than the fact that Charlie, who is her boss, she works at the secondhand store, um, he's been chosen to be this this dark supernatural thing, and he's such a dork. Yeah. And she, who really deserves to have something special like this happen to her, has not. Yeah. And so much of the book is her dealing with the fact that she works aside, beside Ray, who is this this sort of alienated horn dog ex cop and Charlie who is this beta male overthinking you know single father who has now had this enormous responsibility heaped on him by the universe and and she's just sort of in the middle of it just steaming mad that you know she's not special <laughs> um, which continues on into the second book oh good to know yeah now I've read you say about San Francisco it's like a big party bowl of weirdness. I'm I'm surprised to hear that you weren't living in San Francisco when you wrote a dirty job because it seems like that city. I, I'm of course you you live there now, but tell us about that city's influence on your writing in general, and then specifically around a dirty job. My first two books, which came out in in the early '90s, um, the second one's in Montana, and the first one was in this little town and the central coast of California it was very villagey and, and sort of removed. And, and I wanted to write a book about a city and, and San Francisco was the closest to me. So I, um, I went there to write my third book, which was Blood Sucking Fiends. And San Francisco has the advantage of being a very walkable city. You can, and it's a tiny city. It's a toy city compared to like New York or London or Paris. You know, it's the whole thing is seven square miles and it's on a peninsula and, and, you know, yet it has very distinct neighborhoods, has the largest, you know, Chinese community outside of China. And, and uh, you know, I live three blocks from that, as does Charlie in, in the book. And so the, the sort of all the cultural things that you think about in an, in an international city like New York, you have in San Francisco, but on a much more compact scale. Yeah. And, and so that's a really great setting for a story. And it's also a, a city that's got a, a lot of light gets to the street. Um, and so it's a real city of light and dark. And it has a personality with the, you know, the fog that comes in um, off the bay virtually every night. Um, and yet it, it can be stunningly beautiful um, during the day and, and if you get the occasional clear night. So, so visually it, it, it really appeals as a setting. And, uh, and, and so in doing Dirty Job, I, it was strangely enough, I was living in... Um, in Hawaii at the time that I could oh. see the, of the, the, you know, so really, and, which is not a great place for a horror story yeah. to be set. And, um, and I just came and checked into a hotel and, and, uh, stayed in the city for about three weeks, wandering around, looking at things, catching details and, you know, riding the bus and listening to conversations on the bus, going to coffee shops near where people worked and listening to people on their lunch hours, less on this book than I had on, on the earlier book. And then taking the experiences of, of recently having cared for my mother who was terminally ill and then my um, wife's mother who was terminally ill and having learned about death, a little bit about death up close and personal. And I thought, well, I'll just put this all in this setting and see what I can do with it. Yeah. 
You've talked about the importance of, of you know keeping a sense of humor even in those those very dark times when when a relative is is ill mm-hmm. and how you use that and and also your your great respect for those end of life caretakers and it's interesting to know that and to read the book with that in mind. I think it's very helpful. I think it's a great book to read around those times, right? Well, I I hear that from people who have read it. I mean, for me, it was just saying. You know, any writer, you think, well, what what have I learned? And and occasionally, you know, you 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 look at it, at life and go, well, I'm gonna have to write the same book again because I don't know anything more now than I did on the last book, and and I had just sort of over a period of about five years gone through one of those great passages of life, which is to be up close and 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 personal with someone who's dying, and. Um, and I thought that I had learned something. And, and that was, you know, the thing I had learned was to respect those people who take care of the dying and, and bring compassion and kindness in an active way into, into those people's lives. I, I have a great admiration for people who can do that and live with that kind of intensity. And one of the things I try to do with the book, and not to, to get too in the weeds thematically, because it's ultimately a comedy, and I think one of the funniest things I've ever written, but maybe that's by the contrast. But but when someone is dying, a lot of the, the bullshit that you have avoided and all the little resentments and bad habits and, and sort of things that you've accumulated, they just don't matter. Yeah, they drop away. Yeah. Yeah, what matters is, you know, you've got 30 seconds right now and and you have to be immediate and in the moment and present and people who live their life in that space um i i think should be lauded because yeah. it, there is an intensity to that that is so far beyond how we live our day-to-day life and and so far beyond the the pettiness uh, um, and self-indulgence as far as like I said, you know, wants, needs, and resentments that uh, that we count as important when, in fact, you know, you're right, right at the edge of life and death and you think, now, you know, what's important right now are these cheese and crackers. Right. What's important right now is that we laughed. Yeah. What's important is is uh, the vividness of moments. And so, you know, not again, not to sound too woo-woo about this because I, I don't, think that way but I did want to come to the book with the idea that you know our all our lives are are composed of these moments and the more present that we are in these moments the more we have lived and and we really tend to not be as present in those moments as we are when we're standing face to face with death yeah and uh, and, uh, and which is all sounds very very heavy compared to you know a a book that has so many goofy things going on. It. It's a very funny book. Now, who makes you laugh? Um, in print, uh, David Sedaris does. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the guys that I really admire have passed on sort of recently. Uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut and um, Dave Barry's not dead. I didn't mean to say that, but Dave Barry's stuff makes me laugh. He's fairly consistent. Um, I I tend to like comedians a lot. I was devastated when Robin Williams passed away. Um, he was yeah. such an inspiration for me, and not that I ever thought I would be like him, but just as a as a kid, as a teenager, and and in my twenties, I I thought of you know that sort of brilliant riffing that he could do um, yeah. was was an example of of you know what you could do, and and I actually have have learned a lot of comic timing from. Uh, 
from comedians. And uh, I've, yeah. I've actually I've become pretty good friends with a guy named Jake Johansson who who came up in the 1980s and um, and I really admired his sort of understated uh, uh, delivery and so forth. And I thought, well, you know, I wonder if he can do that in print. And 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 I, it turns out you can. So uh, you know, I often in the few times when I teach workshops, I I tell people, look, I can't teach you to be funny, but I may be able to teach you comic timing because I learned it, and I learned it not from writers, but from comedians and actors. Yeah. You know, is where is where I've learned comic timing, and you just have to learn to make that work on the page. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear you say that because it it reads that way. I've I've I think I've also read or heard you talk about the challenge of physical comedy on the page and what you've learned about that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I started out, um, my second book was called Coyote Blue and it's based on the, uh, the uh, Native American trickster god Coyote. And the thing about Coyote is he's not a very articulate fellow. Most of his, the funny stuff he does is physical. And so I was sort of challenged that I had to bring physical humor to the page. And where I really learned that, strangely enough, was from authors that are not necessarily funny, but that are really good at, at writing things that move, which were guys that write westerns like Zane Gray and um, Louis L'Amour, you know, because they had to keep the story going with a lot of gunfights oh, and a lot of running around and you had to be able to follow it. And so their, they, their ability to write movement in prose was very, very good. So I found that the way to, to work that on the page was to pick really descriptive verbs so that I didn't have to slow down the action to say it, you know, to, to modify things, you know, and so that you could, uh, and, and nouns as well. And so if someone, I, I think there's a scene where in that book where Coyote hits somebody with one of those old PBX phones and he's holding a broom of wires in his hand after it's shattered all over the guy's head. Yeah. And, and the, the that idea that all, made it yeah. funny was it's a broom of wires. Right. And, and I could have spent, you know, a paragraph describing what that looked like, but by picking the word broom, and I, which is not to pat myself on the back, but it was saying that's the craft that I learned. And it, and it was and is and always is a challenge to put that in the reader's head and not make them realize they're reading. I want to ask you one more one more point about writing. Do you, do you write a very quick first draft and in that draft, say he hit him over the head with the telephone and upon second draft, do you come up with the broom of wires or, or does it all come together for you? Usually it's a first draft. Really? Usually it all, it's, I, I, yeah, I write pretty slowly compared to other people I know. Okay. But I don't have to rewrite very much. Now, humor is reaction mm -hmm. and and a lot of it is fresh reaction. You know, my first instinct my, um, is to look at the funny. And, and so when people ask me about research, I'm not always there to find out what the facts were. I did a book uh, called Lamb a few years ago that's set in, in first century Palestine. It's a comic retelling of the story of Jesus. And I didn't go to Israel because I was going to see the the society that existed 2,000 years ago. I went there because I was going to have visceral reactions to what I saw, and those were going to be where much of the comedy came from. Yeah. And by that time, I think that was my sixth or seventh book, I knew that's how it worked. Yeah. Is that, that, and, and so speaking you know, to the first draft question, um, I may have a moment where I'll have a reaction and I'll just write that into my notes. So do you keep a notebook that you jot everything down and then... Where... Yeah, all the time. Absolutely. And where do you keep that notebook in your house? 
I well, I have uh, <laughs> a little bit OCD about it. Most authors do. That's why I ask. Yeah, I if if I'm carrying a bag, which is fairly often, I'll have like a full size moleskin. If I'm not, I always have one of the teeny tiny three by five ones with a teeny tiny Japanese pen that I carry for this reason in my back pocket. Always, always, always. And as, as I get older and remember less on a day to day basis, I'm more obsessive about always having a notebook with me. And then because of uh, the advent of cell phones, every time I fill a page or have something that I think is a special note, you know, that I really do want to remember this no matter what, I photograph it with my phone and yep. send it to a to an online notebook that ends up, you know, in the cloud somewhere. So it, yep. if, if even if the computer goes on fire, you know, I used to I can remember writing my first book in the late 80s and keeping um, a copy of the first draft in the freezer because that was. The, <laughs> I've heard this more than once. Yeah, I've that was the equivalent of the cloud in those days. Yes, that was the cloud. Yeah, I, the, the, the short answer is I always have a notebook with me. And, yeah. And, well, we're so glad that you keep all those notes because it, it results in it results in very very funny books. All right. Well, thank you so very much for your time right, today. I appreciate you. it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.